You are the salt of the earth, but the salt, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start uh, this morning with a, a quick question. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about this. I think about this fairly often. What is the percentage of people that would be needed in a given group of people, in a given culture, in a given country perhaps, to be on the same page and to be on the same mission that they would make a lasting impact, that they could actually change the culture? How much critical mass is required for change to take place? At least for me, my democratic way of thinking tends to think you need a majority. You know, it needs to be at least 50% in order for a cultural tide to shift. However, I, I think that some sociologists and researchers have proven that that's not the case. Robert Bella was a sociologist who taught for a long time at um, Cal Berkeley, and he was very interested specifically in the influence of religion on the community. And uh, a number of years ago, he was interviewed by Psychology Today and, and asked that exact question. And here's what Bella said. He said, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision, 2%. And you know what? History on multiple occasions has actually proven that to be true. Perhaps the most prominent example is the history of our own faith. Christianity began as a very, very small persecuted religious sect in the ancient Roman Empire. And many ancient historians have been asking the question in various books for a number of years now, how did Christianity go from such a small, way below 2% group of people to become the dominant cultural force in the Western world? One of those historians is a man named Larry Hurtado, who wrote a book called The Destroyer of the Gods. And he tries to answer that question. And in this book, He says, Christianity grew through a tiny percentage of the population in the Roman Empire being converted and beginning to live in another way, in the way of Jesus. They punched way above their weight class. Hurtado argues persuasively, I think, that it was because of a few key ethical things that ordinary lower class people who had been converted began to practice and begin to change things. Some of those things were no longer exposing infants who were unwanted to the elements. Others were demonstrating biblical sexual ethics. And and a third major factor was practicing radical generosity and hospitality. 
Hurtado makes a compelling case that a small group of ordinary poor Christians began really to change the Roman Empire, uh, Empire, that they destroyed the gods, the ancient Roman system, through living in the way that Jesus calls them into. In these verses, Jesus calls his people to live in a provocatively new way. He uses two very famous analogies. I bet you're familiar with them, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you haven't ever read Matthew. He calls us the salts of the earth and the light of the world. And Jesus says that because if you're one of his disciples, this is your role in the world, Christian communities can have an outsized impact. Jesus' message here is that we, his people, are to be different from the world for the sake of the world. We're to be different from the world for the sake of the world. We're moving into this very well-known collection of teachings of Jesus that Matthew compiles in this gospel. And these verses are a part of that collection, uh, and they're known as the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we saw Jesus began by telling us about who his kingdom is for. We looked at those beatitudes of lack. The poor in spirit are those who will receive the kingdom of God. He also taught us about what the people of the kingdom are like, the beatitudes of love. And we saw that the beatitudes radically invert our expectations. Christ came for those who have nothing, And Christ came for those who are nothing. The kingdom is for the poor. The kingdom is for the sad. The kingdom is for those who are hungry for things they don't have, like righteousness. And we saw Jesus tell us that the way of the kingdom is to live mercifully and peacefully and with purity. It is these, he says, who are truly happy, who are truly blessed. It is these to whom God says, congratulations. Now... Jesus continues to tell us who we are. Remember, the order of Jesus' teaching in this sermon is critical. He gives us blessings before he gives us commands. He tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. And that continues here. Free grace from God leads to new practices for God. Jesus moves from the blessings of the Beatitudes to these descriptions of how his people are to function in the world. We are, he says, salt and light, so we're to live like it. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light. Let's look at these two ideas together in the next couple of minutes and ask for God to help us uh, to apply it to our lives today. So two things, salt and light. Okay, very simple. First, Jesus says, verse 13, you're the salt. You're the salt of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, when we think of salt, I'll speak for myself. When I think of salt, I think of tortilla chips. (laughs) Naturally, we're Texans. Salt is a flavoring element. It might've been said once or twice in our house, this soup needs salt. Um, That's a part of the idea for sure. Christians, kingdom people, are to leave the world with a good taste in their mouths. 
But in the ancient world, salt had another use. In fact, it was its primary use. Salt wasn't just a flavoring agent. It was a preservative. Of course, in the ancient world, they didn't have deep freezers. And so meat and other perishable items had to be cut up and filled in with salt so that it could be preserved as edible food and stored. And interestingly, salt could lose its saltiness rather easily back then. Most salt was not pure sodium chloride in Jesus' day. Rather, it was an impure mixture of chemicals along with those two chemicals. So the compound was not completely stable and could lose its, quote, saltiness. That is, its preserving power if one didn't keep it pure. So when Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth, he means that in following him and in living in his kingdom, we have a flavoring and a preserving influence in the world. Jesus also uses the salt metaphor because salt is common. Jesus doesn't say, you're the cinnamon of the earth. Some of you are cinnamon. Don't get all mad at me. You're very sweet. Okay. He doesn't say, you're the saffron of the earth. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Christians, he's saying, as a matter of regular practice, are to engage in preservation of our world all over the place as we're scattered commonly and regularly throughout culture. And we do that in ordinary ways. I hope this is encouraging to you. Jesus doesn't ever ask us for spiritual superheroism. He simply calls us to walk with him as a community of believers living out kingdom values together. One of the great examples of Christians living as salt of the earth in the last century is the confessing church of Germany in early to mid 20th century during the rise and rule of Hitler and the Nazis. The most famous member of the Confessing Church, of course, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has written many wonderful books and was martyred for his Christian faith in a prison cell in Germany. But in in May of 1934, a group of concerned Christians, both pastors and ordinary lay people, met together and formed what was known as the Barman Declaration, in which they created the Confessing Church. They did this because they had seen, by and large, the churches of Germany fall in line with Hitler and Nazism and his oppressive, racist policies and practices. And normal Christians begin to voice their concerns, begin to voice their opposition, begin to say, this is not the way of Jesus. And of course, Bonhoeffer was one of the leaders of that movement. And it remained, it's obvious today that through their work in a very difficult time, they were able to preserve, to preserve the church and much of kingdom work in a place like Nazi Germany. Now, that might seem extraordinary, but at the time, they were simply being faithful in a very hostile world. They were acting as preservative, as salt. In what ways can we act as salt? Regularly, practically. What kept sticking in my head this week is that Christians should be people as we follow Jesus 
who leave others with a good taste in their mouths. Think about this. The job of salt, let's go back to the flavoring idea, is to make something taste good. I don't know about you, but I don't like corn on the cob without salt on it, okay? But if I eat corn on the cob with salt, I'm not going to say, boy, that salt tastes great, right? I'm going to say, the corn on the cob tastes really, really nice and really, really good. Why? Because the job of the salt is not to make you think about how great the salt is, but how great the thing is with which it's involved. So what if you were salt in your Bible study or community group meeting? If you're salt in a community group, people don't go away from the group saying, boy, that person really knows all, knows all the answers. That person really gets their Bible. No, what happens is when you go away from a small group in which someone has been salt, people don't say how great you were. They say, what a great group that was. What a fascinating truth that is. This is pretty simple. Salt makes you feel better about life. Christians make you feel better. Do we leave people feeling loved or do we leave people feeling condemned through our humble, gentle, loving, truth-telling posture? Jesus invites us into his way and he attaches a warning here too. But if salt has lost its taste, verse 13, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt that has no flavor, he says, salt that's not able to preserve is, is worthless. Just toss it onto the road. So in what ways might we lose our saltiness? I think there's two primary ways. The first is that we can lose our saltiness by not being distinct. This is the most obvious way. We become corrupt. The preserving influence that we're supposed to demonstrate is diminished. We're no longer having a healthy influence. When a church so blends in with the culture that it arouses no response from the culture at all, it's either time for God to bring renewal or for God to bring judgment. And for you individually... When people who are not Christians look at your life, at the details of your life, at your calendars, at your bank accounts, and if they say, that's pretty much how I live, you've lost your saltiness. And the main areas in our context, I think, where this is going to be seen are in some of the hot button issues of our day, in areas of marriage and sexual ethics. In the question of greed versus generosity, generosity, excuse me. And in the way we treat and speak about those who disagree with us. Let's not be afraid to be set apart for God. None of us are in danger of being too holy. Especially not me. Let's not be afraid to pursue the purity by being set apart and distinct that God calls us into. So we can lose saltiness by not being distinct. But we can also lose our saltiness by withdrawal. Withdrawal from the world. Salt cannot do its work unless it is among something that is prone to decay. Remember how, you know, if you want to preserve meat using salt in the ancient world, they had to cut deep into the meat and get the salt down into the thick of it. 
And that's what Jesus is asking his people of. He's calling us into engagement, to getting deep into things and adding flavor, adding influence, preserving its goodness. That's one of the ways of Jesus's kingdom. The kingdom of God is a kingdom within other kingdoms. And we're told by Jesus and Paul and the whole New Testament to be in the world, but not of the world. We're the only taste of Jesus that some people are ever going to get. Have you ever thought of that? We're the only taste of Jesus that some people might ever get. And Jesus promises here that we can make an impact in the world as he works through us. So his call is not for us to withdraw from the world. It's to distinctively engage in the world with love and care to be in the world for the sake of the world. One of our core values from day one is missional living. And that's exactly what we mean when we use that kind of language. And I think part of Jesus' call here is for us to consider in what ways do my daily patterns and practices, in what way does my life demonstrate saltiness? How am I engaging? How am I seeking to preserve? Maybe you can have dinner with a Christian couple and a non-Christian couple who live in your neighborhood at the same time. You can engage in relationships with neighbors or family members or classmates who don't know Jesus and prayerfully ask Jesus to show you how to love them well. That's the calling of kingdom people. It's what it means to be salt. Jesus also says, you're light. Let's look at that secondly. Look at verse 14. You are, he says, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, this is a different analogy, of course, but Jesus is making basically the same point. We are salts in that we preserve the world for the sake of the world. And we are light in that we illuminate the world for the sake of the world. In the Bible, light is almost always associated with the concept of truth. So the people of the kingdom, followers of Jesus Christ, are the truly enlightened ones. That's not because of anything in us, by the way, nor should that make us proud. Rather, it's because Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit when we believe in him. And the Holy Spirit takes our blinders off and unplugs our ears so that we can really see and hear how things are. This week, I I watched an Instagram reel. Instagram reels are dangerous for me. I need to get rid of Instagram again. But I fell into the Instagram reel thing and uh, saw one reel of this little baby girl, maybe two-year-old toddler, who was visiting her audiologist. And uh, you've probably seen things like this. This girl's deaf or mostly deaf. And the audiologist had come up with an implant that she was going to put into this little girl's ears. And the little girl's visiting the audiologist with her mom in the room. And the implants go in and they turn them on or do whatever they do to make them begin to work. And the mother begins to talk. And this baby's face, I mean, it lit up. And she began to smile and she began to look around as she she heard sounds for the first time in her life. It's such a picture of what happens to us when we meet Jesus. He opens up our eyes. 
he unstops our ears and we look at the world and at ourselves and at God in a completely new way. People who have had that experience, people like you and like me, who've encountered God in the grace of Jesus Christ, are now God's visible power and presence in a dark world. We are living proof. You are living proof of Jesus's power. You are that right here, right now. So don't hide your light, he says. Let it shine. He gives a warning here, just as he did with salt. It's possible for us, as we saw with salt, to to live in the darkness and not let our light shine. We we can have no distinctiveness from the world. But it's also possible for us to not be around darkness at all. And therefore not use our light to have no engagement with the world. So as with salt and preserving, light cannot do its work unless it encounters darkness. So Christians are called by Jesus on the basis of our connection with him to stand for and speak for and live for the truth and to do it amidst the darkness for the sake of those who are in the darkness. As his people, Jesus invites us to join him in showing others the beauty of truth by making the gospel both believable and beautiful through illuminating his glory and his kingdom. And look at how Jesus tells us to do it. Did you catch it? Verse 15. Excuse me, verse 16. In the same way, let light shine before others so that they may see your good works. It is by our obedience. It's by our service. It's by our love. It's by our being a Beatitudes people that our light shines. Now, some of us, especially in our tradition, have a tendency tendency to think that our light shines by our ideas. And I can argue my way out of trouble or argue someone else into seeing the light. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that your light shines by your obedience, by your good works. If we're following Christ faithfully, and if when we don't do it, we repent and confess and recommit to obedience, we we emit a glow. And the glow leads others to say, man, God must be pretty great. So how are we doing? Church, how are we doing in that? Let's play a game. Really, I'm just going to keep talking. You just pretend that you're playing with me. Um, if, If we left and went all around the city right now, and quizzed a thousand people at random. And uh, we did one of those quizzes where we say a word and they immediately respond with what comes to mind first. And the word we said was church. How many people would say, oh, the light of the world? What do you think? Um, Now, part of the reason that the church is not seen as the light of the world, undoubtedly, is because the world is in darkness. That certainly is true. But part of the reason also, undoubtedly, is because the church sometimes doesn't shine its light very well. The great British missiologist Leslie Newbigin, who spent years as a missionary in India and then came back to the West for the last part of his life, calls the local Christian congregation the hermeneutic of the gospel. 
the hermeneutic of the gospel. Now, hermeneutic is a word that biblical interpreters use, and it's a word that basically means how to interpret the Bible rightly. So if you have a good hermeneutic, your principles for reading scripture are sound. And so you see what Bob, excuse me, what Newbegin is saying. Newbegin is saying that people are going to interpret the reality of the gospel by what they see local churches doing. And the word Jesus uses here, good, in good works, that word means attractive. It means compelling, not repulsive. What Jesus is getting at is that it's our attractive love and faith that shines light into people's lives and therefore helps them know who God really is. Did you see that in the text? The proximate cause for our light shining is that is our good works. But, but the ultimate purpose of it is that people would give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So to get practical as we wrap up here, okay? Let's just take the same issues we spoke about a minute ago when we were talking about salt. How do we show people the truth that Jesus is the light? How do we show people? How do you persuade someone that Christianity is true? Well, we do it by showing people through our lives, the beauty of Christian marriage, the beauty of healthy confession and repentance-driven marriages, the beauty of sexuality within commitment, the beauty of sacrificial other-oriented love. God is glorified when light shines through our marriages. To use another example, how do we persuade people that Christianity is true? By sacrificial generosity. God is glorified when we live generously. When people see how churches don't just want your money, but that we use our resources to help the poor, to create robust community, to contribute to human flourishing. How do we prove the reality of God? By showing the beauty of Christian community. How we're different in the way we treat each other. We don't talk behind each other's backs. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We try not to be hypocritical. We approach people with humility and patience. We seek forgiveness when we sin. And we grant forgiveness when we're sinned against without holding grudges. These are the ways, my friends, in which we are light. The light of the world. That's how we act as a city set on a hill. That is how people will see that following Jesus Christ is both believable and beautiful. It's worthwhile. It's true. Last thing. Jesus doesn't say to you, be salt and be light so that your good works may be seen. He says, you are salt. You are light. So go act like it. These things have already happened to us through our encounter with Jesus by faith. We are changed people by the gospel. And that is what enables us to follow Jesus. Jesus is the real light. He's the sun. He's the stars. We're just lamps. We don't produce light. We only hold light. We become the light of the world only as we're lit by him. Our light is derivative. His light is original. Think about it. If you stare at the sun, it's going to burn your eyes out pretty quickly. So I've been told. Don't try that, by the way. Um, But you can look at the moon all day long, all night long. Because the moon is a reflection of the sun's greater light. That's his people. 
our light reflects and redirects others to his. That's Jesus's call. He invites you in. What an opportunity we have in 2024 to go into the world seeking to preserve and flavor as salt, seeking to illuminate with love as light. May it be more and more the case for us. Amen. Let's pray.